I, know, I now know that NBC is countercultural because generally you want to finish out the year, there's always a saying, save your best for last. That is definitely not the case by having me up here. So I apologize in advance that you're stuck with me today, but uh, I guess we'll just all have to muddle through it, all right? No, but uh, it's a good thing. It's great to be here. I do congratulate many of you that are graduating and those of you that are not graduating but plugged away all year long. Uh, well done. Well done. I know this is a busy time of year, so I can totally understand if you're only listening about 50% to me um, and you're focusing on the finals and all the homework that you have. I understand that. I do want to encourage you that uh, while you go out this summer, uh, you have the opportunity to go and spread NBC to all your friends and acquaintances, so we encourage you to do that. Uh, We would be always happy to send information to people that you bump into uh, we would love to see more and more students just like you come here. So uh, that is my shameless plug. So uh, my recruitment plug. Okay, now we will get to more important things, and it's what God has to say to us today. And uh, actually, God's going to speak to us through my story. I'm going to give you a little bit of my story. I do have a question. How many of you have aspired to one day be, a, be like Gail Heidi? How many want to be someday like him and be an author of like multiple books? Anybody? Okay. <laughs> Scott, Scott quickly said, no, he does not want that. Well, my brother is an author. He's a pastor down in Denver, Colorado area, and he's an author. And I always was like, I'd love to be an author someday, but I can't really come up with enough things that people would want to hear from me. So I really, I don't think that'll ever happen, okay? I probably won't be an author But you know what, as I was thinking about the whole issue of authorship, I'm thinking about the fact that, you know, we all actually are authors. And the story that we're writing is our story, our lives. And it doesn't matter whether you use big words or small words, whether you know what a noun, an adjective, pronoun is. It doesn't matter whether you know the correct spelling. The fact is, is that we all are writing a story, and it's our lives. And over the next few moments, I'm going to bring you into my story, okay? And, and so I don't know whether our stories are going to be long novels of 80, 85 years or whether they're going to be short stories. None of us know how long our time here on earth is. And one thing you'll see through my story is there's a lot of hope, there's a lot of grace and mercy in my story, but there's also a lot of tragedy that I've had to deal with where God has brought me to a point of submission on my knees to him. And so in the next few moments, I invite you into my story. I was born and raised in southeastern Wisconsin. People commonly will call me a cheesehead. Yes, that is true. Okay, I am from there and proud to be there. Uh, From there, I am a Wisconsinite. I am a Green Bay Packer fan, so let's just get that out of the way right now. Okay, I grew up as the youngest of eight children. Um, I have six brothers, one sister. My oldest brother is 20 years older than me. Um, And I'm the baby, and I am and was spoiled. I still am. My mom still spoils me, and I love every moment of it. (laughs) My brothers try to get me in trouble with my mom even today, and it doesn't work because I'm a spoiled brat, okay? And so I, and I, and I ride that one. Uh, My parents uh, are originally from Chicago and moved up to southeastern Wisconsin. My dad was a general contractor in the Chicagoland area, and obviously my mom was a homemaker raising all of us kids. I heard about Jesus from a very young age, and so I would say I came from a Christian home, okay? But I also came from a home that would commonly be called a legalistic home. 
the view that I had about God when I was a child was that God was up there in heaven with an iron fist, and when I made a mistake, he was going to come down hard on me. So I lived with a whole bunch of do's and don'ts in my life. You do this, you don't do that. When you're in church, you look good, and when you're out of church on your own, well, it's not as important as what you look like to other people. I don't say that in, in a cut to my parents. Actually, I, would, I commend my parents, and my mom is one of my best friends today. I have no animosity towards the way I was raised because they did the very best that they could in raising us to be Jesus followers. What's nice about that story is that five of us eight kids are in, in ministry of some kind. I have two brothers who are pastors. I have a sister who is child, over children's ministry. I have a missionary brother down in Honduras, and then, well, there's me. And, uh, and, and I love being a part of NBC. It's not to say that the other three are not followers of Christ. They've accepted Jesus as well. They're just going on a different path in a secular field. So I was saved at a young age through the work of Awana Clubs and, and Bible Camp. And actually, when I was saved, I viewed Jesus as my Savior. I would hear stories of heaven. I would hear stories of hell. And I wasn't an idiot. When I would hear uh, streets of gold or fire, which one do you think you're going to choose? So Bible camp, they would do the altar calls. And, uh, you know, do you want to accept Jesus? And boom, Dan would be up there. And the next year, Dan would be up there. And it got to the common point where they said, didn't we see you last year? This is kind of a common occurrence. But see, I view Jesus as my Savior saving me from hell. But that was the end of it. You see, I I was a three-sport athlete in high school. And so my world was all about me. I did what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it. And if anyone had a problem with that, that was their issue, not mine. Sports were my world. I had created myself as my own God. So I lived very selfishly. And it wasn't until around my senior year that God started to do some things working inside me. And it actually was a coach that came into my home to recruit me to play basketball for his college. And I remember at the end of our conversation, he said to me, you know, if you play for me, I don't care what you do the night before you play as long as you're ready to play the next day. And normally, as a, as a kid that wasn't living for Christ, you say, rock on. He's basically saying, I can go out and party and do what I want, and as long as I'm ready to play, that's good. But something in my mind said, you know what? I don't want that. That isn't for me. And so as I started to head off to a university in Wisconsin, um, I really came to the realization that I need to make a choice in my life. Was I going to follow what I had been trained and what I had accepted in Jesus Christ, or was I going to live for the world? God didn't want me no longer to be on the fence sitting there. He wanted me to make a decision and choose one way or another. So I went off and began the process of of allowing God to become Lord of my life. And there's a difference between being my Savior and being my Lord. And being my Lord was basically turning the reins over to him and saying, Lord, you're in charge, which is very hard for me. I don't know if any of you have this problem, but I tend to like to be in control. Okay, and, and my wife would probably bob up and down and say, yes, he does. When I get into a car, I like to be behind the steering wheel. The reason is, is if I'm going to die, I want to be in charge of my death. I don't want you behind the wheel because then you have to make the choice for me, and I don't really want that. And I daily fight that in submitting and allowing God to be Lord of my life. I just finished my first year of college. And actually was set to start my second year, and it was the night before I was to start my second year. God had a moment with me in the night, and I can't even recall what happened. But I woke up the next morning, 
And I said that I was going to go to Bible school, and I was actually going to move 10 hours north to northern Minnesota. My parents were pleasantly surprised. They were floored by that because they knew I kind of really wasn't too much into the Jesus thing at that time. But God said, no, I want you to do this, and I actually listened. I had five days to apply, pack my stuff, and go. And what, that was difficult for me because there were two things that I always vowed. Number one, I would never live in Minnesota. I said, I will never live in Minnesota. There's Viking fans there, and I don't want anything to do with it. Sorry, I, I see your hat there. No offense. And the second thing I said is, is that I was never going to go to this school called Oak Hills Bible College. I was never going to go there. I had four other families members do it, and I wasn't going to do that. And what did God do? He put me up in northern Minnesota going to Oak Hills. I always say that when you tell God that you're never going to do something, be prepared because he will make your never forever, okay? And it seemed like forever because I worked there for over 24 years after I was done with school. And in my time at Oak Hills, I actually, Jim was right, I served in a lot of positions. I actually did do some teaching, Jim, so I, but I never did the presidency thing. But one thing I had the opportunity to do was I was basketball coach for 10 years. And, and over that time of 10 years, I had the chance of coaching nearly 100 different athletes that came through our program, which is a wonderful thing, and it's friendships that I share today with those players. But it also has been a source of tragedy for me. Back in 2005 and 6, it was the second to last season of my coaching, and we had gotten to Christmas break, and it was the first thing that ever had happened in my coaching career. We actually were at Christmas break, and we had not yet won a game on the season. We were 0-7. And so I was feeling kind of down about that, questioning myself as coach. And uh, I was just, you know, kind of wrestling over the break as to what, what I could do to maybe turn this around. At that same time, I had to deal with the tragic loss of probably my best friend, who was my player. His name was Bobby who I found on a December afternoon in his apartment dead from a self-inflicted gun wound. While I was talking to his dad, I had to relay the message that his son was standing before me dead from killing himself with a gun. At that time, I was ready to quit coaching. I was emotionally at the low level. Our team was 0-7. I just lost a guy that was a very good friend, probably the favorite player I ever coached, someone that was like a son to me. I was ready to quit. But God said, no, Dan, I don't want you to quit. I want you to hang on and put your trust in me. Isaiah 41, 13 says, For I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, Do not fear, I will help you. And that verse has been a source of comfort for me because I can't do it on my own. I have to rely upon the living God. And he loves me enough to not only say, hey, I'm your bud and I'm going to hang with you, but I'm going to hold your hand. And there's something intimate about holding my hand and walking me through life. And he walked me through that. After that time, I'm glad I hung on and coached because something happened. Our team actually got better. And two months later, we actually won a national championship. <laughs> I, would, I was ready to quit. And God says, no, I have something good for you. Okay, something better. After that time, the following season after that, I had to bury two more of my players, dying from two separate incidents. One was died in his sleep at age of 20. Another player who died was hit by a logging truck while he was riding his motorcycle. And one thing that's unnatural for a coach to do is have to bury their own players. Okay? As parents, you should never have to bury your kids, and as coach, you should never have to bury your players. I had to bury three of my players. So again, I had to go back to Isaiah 41, 13. 
and hold on to the hand of the one who gave me the source of strength, and that was my living God. 2007, in December, I got a call from my mom, and she said, Dan, you need to come home. Um, Your dad is struggling and probably not going to live. My dad had a blood condition where he was bleeding, and they could not target where he was bleeding from, so they were going to have to go in and do exploratory surgery. He was 80 years old, not in the best of health, and my mom made the hard decision that she was going to have to let him go. So all of us kids came home, and over a two-week period of time, we watched my dad slowly bleed to death, which is a horrific thing. But in the midst of that, there was something beautiful. We had a moment where all of us kids were around my dad. Cousins were in there. And my dad, who hadn't spoken for several days, actually was kind of humming something. And my mom said to him, Harold, what are you singing? What are you singing? Tell us what you're singing so we can sing with you. Well, my dad hadn't talked. But in a clear voice, he said to my mom, My Jesus, I love thee. My dad, over the next few moments, clearly sang, My Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine. All of us sang with him. Those were the last words my dad said here on earth. But I said, you know what, I want to live like that. I want to live that when I am at the end, I am saying, my Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine. My dad was so doggone confident that he was going to meet his maker, he was singing praises to him as he was bleeding to death. I said, I want that. I want that. And I can't wait to get up there and see my dad someday. My mom is 86 now. She's still living. Um, I I am married. I did meet my wife, and I, I... Save the best for last. I have a wonderful wife of nearly 24 years. I have three soon-to-be-four children. I'm going to tell you the story about my fourth child in just a second. My oldest daughter, Brianna, she's 21. She got married in September, got pregnant in September, having a baby in June. So in a couple months, I'm going to be a grandpa. My son, Ben, is a freshman in college. My youngest daughter, uh, Alyssa, is a junior. I have a wife that I don't deserve, but I'm grateful for, and I love her very much. I wish one of these times she's going to come out here with me. We also have a little girl that came into our lives back in February of last year. My wife and I do foster care. And uh, we started that about two and a half years ago. And one thing I said to my wife is I said, when we started it, I said, now we're getting too old, so just so you understand, adoption is not an option. I said, I'm more than happy to let kids come into our home, love on them, all that, but just don't get any aspirations for us adding to our family. It ain't happening. This little girl came into our home February 2nd of this past year, and uh, her name is Carly. We got a call from law enforcement that said mom had called them and said, hey, can you come get my daughter? I can't do this anymore. This little girl came. She was three months old. She came into our home, and we loved on her, no different than we loved on other kids. But I found something happening within me that I was uncomfortable with. I was beginning to love this little girl in a far deeper way than I ever imagined that I could love someone else's child. I was actually loving her like she was my own. And I remember it was the end of, uh, actually early March, and I flew down to Dallas, Texas, and, and to drive down to San Antonio to speak. And before I left, I gave Carly a hug goodbye and said goodbye. 
And that was probably going to be the last time I was going to see her because she was actually going to go with her mom into a foster home and they were going to figure this thing out together. So I landed in Dallas and was driving down the highway and my wife calls. And she's crying on the other end and she says, I think I just fed Carly her last bottle. And that was sad for her. So we talked a bit and I got off the phone and I started just driving down the road and I was sad. And I popped on my iPod a song by Hillsong United. It's called Cornerstone. And I kept playing it and playing it and playing it and playing it. Next thing you know, I'm a mess. I'm crying. People that were driving by said, I hope he's headed to the psych ward because he needs help. I'm bawling. And God spoke to me. And he said a couple things. And it wasn't the audible voice of Daniel, I'm speaking to you. No, he spoke through his spirit to my heart and he said two things. Number one, he said, Dan, remember when you made me Lord of your life? Okay, you gave me control. You are not in control of your life anymore. You have to trust me. Number two, he said, if I take care of the details of this little girl becoming yours, I want your answer to be yes. Pulled over, texted my wife and said, Gwen, I have had an encounter with God like I've never had before in my life. And he told me that if if he takes care of it, Carly's supposed to be ours. Long and short of it is we're about one month away, month and a half away, and Carly will become Carly Hovestall. She's 18 months. She calls me daddy, and I'm not normally a wreck like this. I must miss my wife or something. My goodness. Okay, but, uh, um, but I love that little girl. And God took care of all the details from a judge that quoted from the Bible, from the mom giving up her ver- uh, rights to us, her mom saying she loves us, to all the things that were obstacles, God just wiped them away. So I'm going to close with a song, and I'm on track, Scott, for time. And Scott just, just reminded me, because I, I, my story could go on and on, and I've kind of condensed it. And there's a whole lot more Bible verses that I wanted to share, but um, you're Bible students, so you know the Bible very well. well. But the one verse that I, uh, that I try to live by each day is, is Psalm 19, 14. It says, may the, words of my heart and the meditations, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Through the example of my dad, dying on a... Uh, dying, Actually, my ultimate dad, Jesus dying on the cross, to my dad dying in front of me. And in the words that he said before he died, I ultimately want to live a life that's honoring to Jesus Christ. That's going to be the song in just a second. Actually, this song you're about to see, Live Like That, it was written by a friend of mine. And he's actually the lead singer of this group called the Sidewalk Prophets. His name's Dave Fry. When I heard this song, I stopped and I was like, oh my goodness, this song is really the passion of my heart. And I messaged Dave and I says, Dave, that song, you just hit it out of the park with me because this song really reflects the passion of my heart. And I hope it's a song that's encouraging to you. And I hope as you go this summer and whatever chance you have to reflect Jesus, that you will live a life that is sweet tasting to our Heavenly Father because that's ultimately what we're here for. We're not here just to take space, okay, and to live through life for ourselves. I did that. It doesn't work. The most rewarding thing is to transform and live our lives for Christ. So live like that by Sidewalk Prophets. Sometimes I think What will people say of me When I'm only just a memory When I'm home where my soul belongs Was I loved 
but no one else would show up. Was I Jesus to the least of us? Was my worship more than just a song? What kind of book are you writing? Is it a bestseller? Or is it one of those that I'll find in the bargain basement? All right? If we've got Jesus in our lives, I think it can be a bestseller. Okay? You know, go and continue to allow God to write your book. But I'll say this. When he died on that cross, he didn't die there saying, you know what, Leota? I'm dying so I can be second, third, or fourth in your life. He said, I'm dying, Scott 
so I can be your number one. So that's our challenge for all of us, right? For me as well, to live like that. Will you pray with me? Father God, I just thank you for each person in this room. I thank you that they are fearfully and wonderfully created by you. I thank you for their passion for you. I thank you for them coming here. Lord, I just pray that as we all write our stories, as you, we allow you to write our stories, that, Father, we'll keep our eyes upon you. And when we mess up, that we get back up and hold your hand, the hand of a God who says, I want to walk through the highs and lows of life with you. Thank you for Jesus. I thank you for this day. Bless each person in this room, not only today, but tomorrow, through the summer, for the rest of their lives. In your name, amen.